Good to see you all on this Lord's Day. We will be uh, our part three of our series, Faithful Pastors and Fruitful People. Uh, So it'll be part three, Faithful Pastors and Fruitful People. Before I launch into that, uh, we have our missions team here, a team of five gentlemen. If you are here a part of the missions team, uh, raise your hand. Just raise it so the church can see you. All right, one, two, three, four. There they are right there. Raise your hand. Give them around. You can put it down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can put it down. Thank you. Uh, Greet them in the Lord. Welcome them as those who are worthy of God. They are doing a great service for the body. They have been working. Uh, They just came and hit the ground running. They are serving our church very, very well and sowing and investing in the kingdom of God, the work here that will last for quite a long time after they leave. So encourage them. Some of you have brought meals and dinners and lunch and things for them. Uh, So thank you if you have done that. They are here till Thursday and would welcome even more. So uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, we don't want them to go home lighter than when they came. All right, so love on them. Uh, Encourage them. If you have time this week, an hour here or there, two hours, a day off this week, by all means, come and join them. Come help, come uh, hang out with them and, and fellowship with them as you work, and that would be greatly appreciated. Second thing, uh, I leave to Houston with uh, Lance Hiramoto and Mike Hunter this coming Friday, the 13th. Ooh, Friday the 13th, around Halloween time, all right. Uh, we're flying to Houston to help with the disaster relief efforts there in the great nation of Texas. Uh, And we are going to go do whatever it is they want us to do. We're going to go in the name of Christ. We're going to go representing KBC. And so pray for us. Pray for our families. Uh, Seek to encourage our families any ways you see fit. Uh, And we will miss you dearly and look forward to returning on the 22nd, Lord willing, the 22nd. We'll return that Sunday. We'll have others preaching in the pulpit here. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Here's what uh, I'm going to ask you to help me while I'm gone. A few things. One, there's a lot to do, uh, especially with the open house. So you would serve me. Many of you always ask, hey, pastor, if there's anything you need, ask, all right? I'm asking, right? Serve Melanie. Uh, in the open house. That would greatly benefit her and the preschool. Serve her by being hands and feet, but also by engaging the preschool families. That is a rich opportunity for outreach and encouragement to love young families in the name of Christ for the gospel of Christ and have a serious impact. So serve Melanie. That's one way you can help. That's the 21st. It's a Saturday morning. Uh, Show up there and help her. Make sure she's got plenty of hands. I would love to come back and hear, man, pastor, I just had more people than I knew what to do with. All right. That's one way you can serve me. Second way, second way. I'm going to have others preaching, and here's what every pastor knows. Every preaching pastor, when the preaching pastor is out of town, sometimes the members take the same liberty. All right? Come and encourage those who are sharing the Word of God by being present, by being active listeners, and at the same time, uh, be encouraged from them as they preach the Word of God. This is part of the body of Christ, that we would train up. This is part of your function, your authority in the body of Christ, that you would come and train up people from within your own body to preach the Word of God and to be mighty in the Scriptures. I long for the day that our young people or those who aspire to do ministry in the church in Maui don't have to be shipped off to the mainland to receive training. 
but they get training right here in the local body of Christ and encouraged and appointed to ministry. That's what we long for. So come out in those times and encourage them. Now, we're going to get to it today. Uh, it's been 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. You're going to hear more about that on October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Roman Catholic Church. And today, the shockwaves are still felt for us. Now, in our church, we have just voted in a way to reform the leadership of our church to be a elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally appointed church. And the impacts of this for Maui and the community are vastly, vastly important. This has the potential to multiply our efforts in the community. This has the potential to multiply our efforts and provide stability in the church for generations. It really does. It really does. And so this is what we long to do. The most significant aspect about this is this is a practice that's found in the New Testament. This is a pattern of church leadership found in the New Testament. If you think of the differences between denominations, you think of Anglicans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, uh, Methodists, uh, whoever else it is, uh, non-denoms, Baptists, and so on and so forth, often it is a difference. One of the things is a difference in structure and who is leadership, how is that leadership instituted, and who has a say in that? Seriously, that's a huge portion of the differences. Why is this important for us today here in Kahului? Why am I going to draw your attention to it? One reason you already know it's important. Leadership matters, doesn't it? Leadership matters. All of us have served under good leaders, whether it be in the home, maybe with a good father, Maybe at a job, at a school with a good teacher. Man, I remember my seventh grade teacher, math teacher, changed my life for the better. Uh, I've tried to track her down in Georgia, but I just can't find her. Uh, but she changed, good leader. She saw me, and she did exactly what she needed to do. I was struggling, and boom, changed my life, seriously. We've all felt the impacts of good leaders. We've also all suffered under bad leaders, leaders who are wicked or ineffective or just inept in various ways. We've all struggled with that. Leadership matters in communities, it matters in families, it matters in the nation, and it matters in churches. What you saw this past presidential election was what happens when you have leaders with no character. It matters. It doesn't matter who you voted for. Neither of them have character. If you think Donald Trump has, as a man of character, you have problems weighing character. Read any of his books. What we are struggling with in our nation is an issue regarding leadership. So, in the past two weeks, as we are looking at reforming our church, reforming our structure, what we're looking at is leadership, because what we're going to ask the church, you, the body of Christ, the members here at KBC to do, is to truly nominate and ultimately appoint and affirm leaders. This is a great privilege. This is a great joy. And it is a great matter to give thought and consideration to. So we've looked at the, the passion of a pastor 
the leader, pastors, elders, bishops, overseers, whatever you want to call them. Uh, we have looked at their, their passion. They have to have a desire, a drive. We've looked at their person, their character. We've looked at their practice. They have to be able to teach, and they have to manage their own household well. And today we're going to look at the position, the position of the pastor. What does a pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, what do they do? What do they do? How are they appointed? How does that interact with you in the pew? And then, of course, why does it matter if you're not a member of Kahului Baptist Church? Why does it matter if you're visiting with us? Why does it matter if you're struggling with family problems, work problems? What impact does this have on you? Don't worry, this isn't just a sermon on leadership, even if you have no desire to be in it. This has great relevance for you, as you will see you hang in there. So let's pray. We'll seek the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, you are the good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. And Father, we bless you and give you praise and honor and glory for the work that you did on a cross. Father, you died, you rose again for sins, for our sins. And I pray that we would rest in that, that we would uh, rejoice in that, that the gospel is the power of God to save. And we thank you that you have not left us alone. You have left your people in the care of under-shepherds who reflect and, and act like Christ. And I pray that this church would see many in the near future and in the long term who raise up from within as men who love the flock, as the Good Shepherd does. So, Lord, would you do a mighty work? Would you bless the people of Maui as we seek to appoint good leaders who will preach the gospel and pray for your people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here's the big idea. A pastor is called by God, affirmed by the congregation, and appointed for service to lead, feed, protect, and correct the flock of God. So if that's a mouthful for you, I'll read it again. But the main parts, if you just get this, to lead, feed, protect, and correct the flock of God, right? A pastor is called by God, affirmed by the congregation, and appointed to service to lead, feed, protect, and correct the flock of God. That's how I worded it. Let me give you how St. Augustine, the African bishop or overseer from A.D. 400, described it. This is what he said, I quote, how he described the office of a pastor. Disturbers are to be rebuked, the low-spirited to be encouraged, the infirm to be supported, objectors confuted, the treacherous guarded against, the unskilled taught, the lazy aroused, the contentious restrained, the haughty repressed, litigants pacified, the poor relieved, the oppressed liberated, the good approved, the evil born with, and all are to be loved. Close quote. Well, St. Augustine of Hippo. Let's just pray and end right there. He did a better job than I think I'm going to do, right? That's how he put it. Now we will turn to the scriptures 
to see what the instruction they have for us. So what we're going to do in this sermon is I'm just going to unpack that big idea that I gave, uh, not, not Augustine's, but, but the one I gave, a pastor's called by God, affirmed by the congregation, appointed to service, to lead, feed, protect, and correct the flock of God. We're going to unpack that big idea in each successive point. So we're going to start with called by God in Acts 20, 28. Acts 20, 28, called by God. God. Now, this passage, we're in the book of Acts, and Paul has gone to Miletus. He has summoned the elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus. So if you think of the book of Ephesians, anybody read Ephesians before? Who's read Ephesians, right? All right. So most of you, that great book, he's called the pastors of that church, and now he is going to give them his farewell speech. Why? Because they're never going to see his face again. Because he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get arrested. He's going to have all these things happen to him. And guess who he's not going to see on this planet? Them. And so these are the last words from Paul the Apostle to the pastors in Ephesus to encourage him. Wow. What would you say? What would you expect him to say? This is that passage. This is that point. So the first, one of the things he says within this uh, section, this you could say farewell sermon or speech to the pastors in Acts 20, 38, this is what he says. We're going to be moving fast with a lot of Scripture today because I want you to see what Scripture says a pastor's to do. All right? So Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Remember, a pastor is called by God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which, what, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now that word overseer, the Greek word is episkopos. That's where we get our word bishop, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If any man desires the office of an overseer, that's that word right there. So this is important. We've already covered this. I won't spend long here, but it's important to note again and again and again, even though the congregation here at Kahului Baptist will have a role in affirming pastors and identifying them, we don't make pastors. We seek to discern what God is doing already. The Holy Spirit, God, makes pastors. They are called by God. They are affirmed by the congregation. Now, to say that God makes pastors doesn't mean that Christians, members of a local body of Christ, have zero say in anything. It's not what that means. Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. This is often regarded by many as the calling of the first deacons or later, what would become the office of deacon. It's one of the uh, clearest outlines of what we have of the appointment of church officers. And so uh, I won't get into the nitty-gritty of the details, but when, when Titus says, to, I, I left you in Crete to, uh, to set in order what remained and to appoint elders, that word appoint there is a loaded word, is likely referring to what they did here in Acts chapter 6 we get a picture of what that more than likely looked like. Acts 6, 3-4. The apostles summon the full amount of the disciples, the church, and he says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you, pick out from among you the disciples. You pick out, select from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will, here it is, appoint to this duty 
That's the same word in Titus 1. Whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They are affirmed by the congregation. So what they literally did in this issue of the deacons is they had the body. You appoint, you select from yourselves seven people of good repute, full of the wisdom, full of the spirit of God. And then they took them and then they appointed them. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. We won't read it, but in essence what Paul is doing is he is chastising the churches in Galatia. You know, Galatians is the only letter written by Paul that does not have a thanksgiving section in it. It's the only one. It's the only one. Why is that? Because Paul is quite upset at what's happening in Galatia. And he is chastising them in verses 6 through 10. He opens his letter, and immediately, boom, I am astonished. I am astounded at what is happening, right? And he just goes on. And what is he chastising them for? The church, not the elders, not the deacons, but the church. What is he chastising them for? For entertaining false teachers. He is telling them, in essence, you have a responsibility whom you entertain and allow to teach. You bear some weight in this. Now, this would lead us to see that these believers had some sort of responsibility or authority in who they chose to listen to. And in that sense, they had authority. Because Paul said, even if myself or an angel from heaven should come to you and preach another gospel than what I've already preached to you, you should let him be anathema, accursed, cut off. So they are affirmed by the congregation. We could get in more into the peculiar details or the particular details of congregational governance, but we will move on. They are called by God, affirmed by the congregation, appointed for service. Verse 19, he says, serving, he was serving the Lord with all humility. That's, what, that's how Paul described his ministry. It was a service to the Lord. Now, that seems as a no-brainer, but the, ser- the, the role, the position, the office of the pastorate is a position of servanthood. And it is to be one done with humility. You want men who are humble, who can receive instruction and receive correction. Or as one pastor said it, you want men who are under authority before you place them in authority. How does this person serve under the authority of Scripture, under the authority of pastors? How do they demonstrate humility in that regard before we set them in authority? That's the pattern of the New Testament, men who are under authority and then in authority. That's to say, ultimately, we want men who are like Jesus. We want men who are like Jesus, don't we? Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you are thinking, whom will I select? Whom will I put forward for Pastor Randy and others to consider in this process? You want men who are like Jesus in John 13, who aren't afraid to take the most base of tasks, the most menial labor, like washing feet, who aren't too proud to take off their garment to pick up a servant's towel and meet the needs of the saints. 
That's what you want. That's what you want. Pastors, Mark Dever has said that pastors are servant leaders. Deacons are leading servants. That's what you want to look for. You want to look for men uh, in, in any capacity who are servant leaders for the position of pastor and for the position of deacon, men who are leading servants. So it's a position of service. Now, in order to, what is the, now how do they do this? What, what is that for? What is the end? In order to lead, feed, protect, and correct. So let's, let's break that down. In order to lead, that hits at the idea of the pastor as overseer as overseer, as in charge, so to speak. Listen to what he says in Acts 20, 28 again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Why? To care for the church of God. To care for the church of God. Jesus is called in 1 Peter 2.25, both the shepherd and overseers of our souls. This is what he says. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's Jesus. So we take our pattern of leadership, our pattern of oversight, our pattern of authority as a pastor, and we cue it from who? Jesus, who is called the overseer and shepherd or pastor of our souls. Paul enumerates this further, 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That idea of rule is tied in this office of leadership. They lead, they rule, and they rule well. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.12-13. We ask you, brothers, check this out. We ask you to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is that aspect of leading. So pastors, they lead, and then they what? They feed. They feed. You could say underneath this, there's the ministry of the Word and the ministry of prayer. We feed the flock of God through the ministry of the Word, and the ministry of prayer. Acts 6-2, that same scenario, that same scene where they're, they're calling deacons, they're, they're putting, putting men forward to meet a need in the church. This is what the apostles said. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is the chief office of the pastor. We spoke about this in being able to teach, so we're not going to spend a ton of time, but these are men who are given to the Word of God, who, who know God, who, who give themselves to applying the Word of God in their own lives and to proclaiming that Word of God to others in various fashions. And that is their primary and central task of the office of pastor is the, the ministry of the Word, that they wouldn't be distracted by serving tables or other logistical tasks that may interfere with their ability to meet the spiritual needs of the body of Christ. It's very important, the ministry of the Word. The ministry of prayer. Acts 6-4, a few verses later, it says, but we, we will devote ourselves to what? To prayer. 
we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. You can't accurately, efficiently teach the Word of God apart from talking to God in prayer. You can't do it. You can't understand the things of the Word of God, which are taught by the Spirit of God, apart from prayer. There is a well-known, very, very popular megachurch. I'm not saying megachurches are bad by any means, so don't, don't take this from that. There's a very well-known, popular megachurch. I won't say which one. Very well-known authors. And one day, their worship leader got up and said, man, we did that so good. I think we could do that without, without prayer, without the Holy Spirit. We, we got this. What he was saying is, we got this down. And that caused the elders, rightfully so, to pause. Say, what have we done? What have we done? If we are efficient but devoid of the power of God, or if we can do what we do without the power of God, then we have to ask, what are we doing? What are we doing? Or on the flip side, the flip side, think of Moses. He goes up to Mount Sinai. He receives the Ten Commandments. He's talking to God, and he comes back down the second time. And what is his face doing for my Bible scholars in here? Shining, glowing, radiating the glory of God. And the scriptures go on to say that whenever he would go in to talk to God, he would take the veil off. And when he would come out, he would put the veil on because the people were, quite frankly, freaked out. They were scared. This is the effect of a man who gives themselves to prayer, that there is something different about them, isn't there? There is a difference in their countenance when they are resting their burdens on the burden bearer. There's a difference. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. The people are being chastised and judged by God because they wanted a king, not God. God is judging them for this. And then they're, in, they're, they're asking, they're pleading with Samuel, please pray for us for the wickedness we have done. And Samuel responds, far be it from me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. They had sinned greatly against Samuel. They had sinned greatly against God. And Samuel's response, far be it from me that I would sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. That's the model for the, pastoral's prayer, for the pastor's prayer life for pastoral ministry. The ministry of prayer among the leaders of God's people is for the purpose of honoring God and encouraging the people of God. And it is worthy of time and energy, and it's also worthy to turn other things away so that they can engage in it. Sometimes some of you probably feel this. I feel this when maybe I don't get back to your phone call as fast as you would like me to, or you leave a message and, and I'm just not available, or some logistical detail gets done last minute. You want to know many times what's happening there is I am turning away other responsibilities so that I can intercede for your soul and mine. That's hard because I feel this pressing of, man, this logist there's a stewardship here. I want to be a good, right? But every pastor feels this. Amen. If you sense that, many times that's what's happening. 
And rather than sitting back and saying, I wish pastor would get it together. Why don't he just do this, this, and this, and this? You can come and help. You can come and help. You can come alongside and say, hey, man, that logistical detail, I want to do more. If you see pastor or any pastor, if you go to a church, you're visiting with us, and you're home pastor, you see them doing things that are not the ministry of Word of God, that are not prayer, I can tell you this, you will bless them. You will bless the body of Christ if you come alongside them and take logistical things off of them that keep them from that all-important ministry of the Word and prayer. It's worth taking time in and turning other things away so that you can engage in that. The ministry of the word and prayer, that's what we do. We feed. What else do we feed? How, how do we feed? So, so we teach the word of God. We, we pray for the people of God. What exactly do I feed you? Whenever I see you in some capacity or whatever, what exactly does a pastor feed people? Feeds them the gospel. That's what he does. He feeds them the gospel. Check this out. This is cool in Acts chapter 20. This is what he says. Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Or, verse 21, testifying, here it is, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is a pastor's chief feeding proclamation, whether it be up here or in a counseling setting or in a visitation setting or in a hospital or at a funeral or in just a prayer meeting? What do we minister? We minister the gospel. We declare, we testify, we proclaim, we teach, we preach the gospel. The gospel. Paul would go on and, and expand this and say, Verse 27, if I'm going to proclaim the gospel faithfully, I must, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The entire counsel of God. Old Testament, New Testament. Everything that God has to say is profitable. And I get to declare that to you. It's a great privilege. I don't get to declare my opinions on what I think about uh, whatever happened or, or whatever's popular in the culture or any of those types of things. I declare the whole counsel of God, and a faithful pastor will do the same. This is actually why I preach through books of the Bible systematically as my general practice, because I have to answer to God. He's going to ask me, did you declare my whole counsel? Or did you just pick and choose the parts you wanted to apply? It keeps me honest. It keeps me faithful to the Scriptures. And then it grows the body of Christ. It's able to build you up into Christ-likeness. This is what he says in Acts 20, 32 about proclaiming the counsel of God. Now I commend to you or commend you to God. And here it is. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
So we preach the Word of God, don't we? We preach the Scriptures. We read the Scriptures. We memorize the Scriptures. I want to give you the Word of God. We protect. Pastors lead, feed, and protect. Acts 20, 29-31, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce, get that, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Picture that. This is viewed, this is seen as the flock of God. That's what he's called. He calls you the flock of God, which means you're sheep. And Jesus said, wolves will come to you in sheep's clothing. And now again, Paul picking up on that and says, after I leave, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Now you look around on a church Sunday morning, doesn't matter if you're a church our size or a church of 2,000. Everybody has what? Smiles. Good to see you. Praise God. Paul says some of them are wolves. Some of them are wolves. As a young pastor, I just learned this, the Southern Baptist thing. I, I, I didn't grow up Southern Baptist or anything, so I'm still regularly learning things. And one of the things I just learned that I found quite interesting and that irritated me greatly when I first became a pastor was, was going to these big convention meetings and, and watching these guys pass resolutions that, on things we already agree on. Resolve to say that the Word of God is the holy, inspired, inerrant infallible word of God. And I'm like, why are we talking about this? Why is this taking time? We're, we're, we've already agreed on this is already in the Baptist faith and message. Why are we talking about this again? Or, or resolve to recognize the, the sanctity of marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman. Why are we talking about this? We already agree on what's, what's the deal? I didn't understand. It wasted, it seemed to me to waste a lot of time. And I just found out, uh, I learned, I had somebody explain to me the reason they did that was because false teachers never come out and clearly state their position. They cloak it in words that sound like affirmation unless you corner them and pit them to say very specifically, what do you mean when you say X? And they hide, and in this manner they infiltrate uh, denominations, organizations, until they get in positions of leadership and start to affect problems and chaos. Oh. So what they're doing in those resolutions is trying to flush out those who do not agree with biblical teachings. And suddenly I'm corrected in my young path. Okay, that makes sense. Got it. Got it. Okay, that sounds good. Let's make more resolutions, all right? This is what Paul's saying. Fierce wolves will come in. Pastors have the role to protect the body of Christ. John Bunyan, in his work, The Pilgrim's Progress, when he pictures the elders, one of them, their name is Watchful. Watchful. It's his name. He's, he's overseeing, he's watching the flock of God from an elevated position. This means that pastors aren't always yes-men. They don't have this overruling desire that you would like them. I want you to like me. I want to be faithful more. Amen. I want to be faithful more. This is the type of person you ought to look for. Somebody who is willing to stand for truth in love and to protect the flock of God. 
correct. They correct. Lead, feed, protect, correct. They correct false teaching. They, do, they correct destructive behavior. Sometimes it's not a false teacher. Sometimes some of you are, are like a bull in a china cabinet shop. Either way, things that are easily breakable. Some of you, your personalities, it's not that you're a false teacher. It's not that you're an unbeliever. You're just like a ram with horns. You haven't learned how to control them yet. You're just butting into everything. Every young seminarian is like this. And pastors serve to correct them. Lovingly, graciously lead them in the way that is Christ-like. That's, what, that's in essence what a pastor does. They lead, feed, protect, correct through the ministry of the Word and prayer. Now, that's a summary that's not exhaustive. Some of you might be like, well, what about, what about this, pastor? What about this? What about praying for the sick and giving it, right? Yes, all that falls underneath that. That's a summary of pastoral ministry. What are some additional items that are important to think through? This is important. How do we think of pastors of other churches? How do they relate to this church? Once a pastor, always a pastor? What do you do with this? This is important. Why? You don't have to be in a church very long, or a pastor very long, or a leader position of anywhere very long, before you're inevitably approached from somebody who says, oh, you're a pastor? I'm a pastor too. Really? Where? Well, I was ordained a pastor of whatever, whatever, church of whatever. Are you a pastor now? No. Okay. Like what, so what does that mean? How, how do we interact with pastors of other churches or other places? We're going to have Rocky and Jay come alongside. We love Rocky and Jay. They're excellent. We have retired pastor Jim Wilson. We love Pastor Jim Wilson, right? How do we conceptualize them in this regard in the local church? You will perhaps not be surprised to find that Paul dealt with this as well. Paul was regularly having to write to defend his apostleship. In other words, just because he was called directly by Christ, just because he had letters from the Jerusalem church, did not mean automatically that every church everywhere accepted his authority. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he is explicitly answering critiques and objections against his apostleship. Quite interesting. We also see in Romans 16 and the end of many letters, you often, whenever you're reading the scriptures, probably get to these portions and you're like, blah, 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 greet Rufus, greet so and so, greet Priscilla, greet, right? And you're probably just like, blah, blah, I don't care. We're kind of done with the letter. Just, just get to the end, on to the next book. But actually, those are called postscripts. And in most of those postscripts, those are letters of recommendations to that church to receive these people. So-and-so has served us well. Receive them in a manner worthy of God. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Why? Because in that day, they were having all sorts of people coming in and saying, oh, I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm writing in the authority of Peter. I'm writing in the authority of Matthew. And false teachers coming in saying all sorts of things, upsetting the whole church. That's why Paul said, if myself, even if I come back to you, Galatians, or an angel from heaven comes to you and declares another gospel, don't listen. That's what he's saying. Why? Because people are coming and saying, Paul sent me, so-and-so sent me, I represent Luke, or... 
So the New Testament is not foreign to this. So what does it mean then? What does it mean that I'm a pastor, to be ordained in another church? Well, what does it mean in this church? Let's start there. It means that you have identified and affirmed God's calling on my life because you have seen it. You have heard my testimony, my, my practice and doctrine, and you have affirmed that. When I go to another church, what does that mean? Nothing. It means nothing. When I go to uh, Emmanuel Baptist in Louisville, Kentucky, I go there as pastor of Kahului Baptist Church, not as pastor to be received and affirmed at Emmanuel. Unless, of course, our church wrote a letter saying, please receive him, whatever. But they would have to deal with that on their own side. But I don't necessarily bear pastoral authority, pastoral position at Emmanuel Baptist Church just because I was ordained as a pastor at a Baptist church. Does that make sense? Here's a helpful way to think of this uh, or to conceptualize it. Uh, think of police jurisdictional authority. Or if, you're a, uh, if you work in any certification organization, your certification is only as good as the organization giving the certification. Think of police jurisdictional authority. I was a police officer for four years with the county of Maui. If I were to travel to another state, I have zero authority to enforce laws. I have zero authority to do anything over there uh, as an officer of that state. The policeman there might look at me and, and give me a nod, a customary, oh, cool, it's good to see another law enforcement officer, but we'll take care of things here. Thank you. That's, in essence, how you can conceptualize as pastors. It's not an automatic green card or green light, so to speak. So, that's an important aspect of how do we think of things. And ultimately, what we want to do is put everybody, what we're saying of a pastor here at KBC is that we are recognizing and affirming you as somebody we ought to follow and want to follow in word or deed. That question comes up often. I thought it might be helpful to, to think through in a public venue. Application. Why go through all of this? Why go through all of this? What importance do these character traits in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, the sermon on the position of pastor from Acts 20, what does that have to do with you today? What does that have to do with your home life? Relational struggles, parenthood struggles, past failings, current failings. What does that have to do with you today? Some of you need to hear this. This is what it has to do with you. I'm going to unpack it. All of this means that you are precious to God. Think about that. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the character traits. Titus chapter 1 tells us these are here for us because you are precious to God. You are cherished, prized, valued by the God of the universe. I'm going to leave to Houston on Friday. 
I love my wife. I have three beautiful children whom I love very dearly. Actually, I made sure to ask her before I ever decided or thought about deciding to go to Houston. Why did I ask her? Because I love her. Because under God, my first ministry and priority of ministry is her. So I ought to ask her before I go serve other people. Amen? And I did. And she, very graciously, without hesitation, said, go for it. And as I leave this week, I'm going to be working hard to prepare for her, to prepare for the kids, to make sure they have everything they need in my absence, food, things are all squared away, all these little logistical details for while I'm gone, so she's not greatly taxed by my absence. I know she's going to be crying probably for, for nine of those ten days that I'm gone. She's going to be weeping and wailing, oh, that my husband were here, right? So you might need to go comfort her. I have three children. I'm going to miss them. I'm going to work hard for them as well. But you know what? As much as I love them, because I love them, I'm not going to entrust them to just anybody to care for them. I'm not going to let just anybody who says they want to help come and help my kids. Do you know who I'm not making provisions for? The cat. The cat. If I come home and something happens to my son, I'm going to be so upset. Any of my sons, my daughter, I'm going to be so upset. If, the, if I come home and find the cat has run away, I might praise God. I might rejoice. <laughs> cat hater. <laughs> the cat stands by grace in my house. That's how she stands. Something happens to my dog, if there's a tsunami coming to my dog, coming to take my dog. I know some of you guys think pets are people, but they're not. Like, I love my dog, but if I bring her with me, it's probably so I can eat her in case everything goes bad. <laughs> all right, if everything else fails, she's going to be eaten. 60 pounds of food, all right? I'm not going to make provisions for the pets. Beloved, all these character traits, these standards, these descriptions, these these qualities of men are, exist to say, to say and to demonstrate this reality that you are precious to God. God loves his bride. He loves his children. What's the, what's the old song say? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Acts 20, 28, to care for the church of God. He's made you overseers to care for the church of God. And get this little line here, uh, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, when you go out to eat today, you're going to get hungry. Now I'm going to make you more hungry. You're going to buy a steak somewhere if you buy steaks and things like that, right? Uh, I don't buy steaks because mostly because they're expensive, right? But you go to a nice restaurant and you look at that ribeye or whatever, that prime rib, it has a nice big fat price tag on it, doesn't it? Why is the price tag there? It draws attention to the value and quality of the meat you are about to purchase. It's letting you know this is valuable. Why is this here? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
It's letting you know, it's drawing attention to the value of the Son of God and the prize of the Bride of Christ. Beloved, you are the flock of God, the congregation of the redeemed, purchased with the blood of his only Son, not silver or gold or bulls and goats, the precious blood of Christ. He's not going to leave you into the hands of just anybody. Psalm 16.3, it says this about the saints, that you are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Sometimes people in the Reformed tradition, we have a big emphasis on the self-sufficiency of God, the self-satisfaction of God, and sometimes that can negate also unintentionally the reality that God views his people as precious. He loves you. He cares for you. No matter what you've done, hear this, no matter what you have done, the Lord Jesus loves his flock. He doesn't round up when it comes to his sheep and say, oh, 99 out of 100, I lost one. That's the majority. He says, how many of you, if they lose one, will leave the 99 and go and find that one? The Lord will not accept the loss of even one of his people, beloved. He loves you. You are cherished by God. He delights in you because of Christ. I know some of you are weak, you're weary, you're tired of the trials that are around. It's like wave upon wave, right? Know this, that God sees you and loves you. As your good shepherd, he's not going to abandon you. Also know in here that some of you probably struggle with depression and darkness at times. You wonder, does, does the Lord hear me? Your good shepherd hears every one of your prayers. He sees every tear. And he's going to respond and wipe them all away. They're all going to be gone. Some of you are hardened. You're stiff-necked. You're struggling. You're, you're rebelling against the Lord. He's patient. He's patient with his people. He's not willing, 2 Peter 3, 9, that any should perish. He's patient with you in your rebellion. He loves you still. Maybe it's the first time in a long time you've heard that, that God views you as precious. Or maybe it's the first time you've thought of anyone who might love you enough to pay for your redemption with their own blood. If that's you, I gladly stand before you this morning in closing and proclaim God loves you. He loves you, and if you will turn today, if you will come back to him today, if you've drifted far away from him, if you will come back today, no matter what you've gotten yourself into, I can promise you this, his mercy extends further than you can run. Come to Christ, the shepherd of your soul. He'll take you back. Would you come today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God that tells us of your great love for us, of the price you paid for our redemption, and of the prize of salvation. Lord, would you grant that many would come today, or this week, or this month, and turn and trust Christ as their Lord and Savior, this great shepherd and overseer of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Now is a time of response. I'd like to invite any of you in here. If you would like to pray about anything or need prayer for anything, or you're just like, Pastor, I've, I've just been far. I need to come back to Christ. I'm going to invite you. I'm going to be in this room to my right and your left. I'd invite you to come and let me pray with you and for you. Otherwise, let your response be in praise to God. God bless.